I'm Evan Applegate, I'm a cartographer, and on very expensive maps I talk to better cartographers. This week's episode features Kevin Sheehan, the man behind Manuscript Maps. He's an artist and cartographer in East Yorkshire who uses old-fashioned dip pens to draw intricate maps on vellum and paper. So my name's Kevin Sheehan. I'm a cartographer and artist, or artist cartographer. Home is currently East Yorkshire, but for a very long time I was up in Durham in, in the northeast of England. But originally I'm from the States, I'm from Denver, and in 2003 I moved to the UK for university, um, and I've been here ever since. It's funny, Americans think I sound British. People over here don't quite know where I'm from. They're like, well, you're not, you're not British, but you might be Irish, you might be Canadian, not really sure. Yeah, it sounds kind of Irish to me. Do you remember the first map that you made? I'm not quite sure if it's the very first, but certainly the first ones I remember were in high school. I was doing the International Baccalaureate program, um, and I did art as part of that, thinking at the time maybe I wanted to be an artist. Yeah, I started drawing fantasy maps, um, pen and ink ones, watercolor. I learned fairly quickly on I'm not all that good at watercolor, but, uh, but pen and ink I certainly had a, a knack for. Kind of making things off the top of my head, experimenting, um, seeing what worked, what didn't. Some of them were kind of in the direction of kind of a fantasy book that I was planning, um, as as many ner- nerdy teenagers do. Uh, and I, I, I have lots of plans and everything for it, but I haven't written <laughs> hardly anything, maybe about 5,000 words. In 2003, having been in, in, in Durham here in the UK, for a few months, I drew a pen and ink map of Durham to give to my parents as a as a Christmas gift, um, and they still they still have it on their wall. You know, maybe one day it'll be worth worth quite a lot of money. You know, one can hope. But that really got me thinking about, oh, this is a uh, an interesting thing to get into. Would you mind walking me through a process for one of these maps? An example: the lunar map. The moon map. I, I started going a little bit mad towards the end of it. It took took me quite a bit longer to make. Than I thought it would, but yeah, it is. It's it's a good example of the kind of full process of how I make a map. For one like that, where I knew there was a lot of information to pack in, I wanted to have a list of all the different landings and missions. I wanted to illustrate exactly how eclipses work, how libration and lunation work. There were so many different things I wanted to fit, but I also had a, a constrained size. I draw my maps at the same size as I print them. Typically, there's a couple couple um, ones that, that I haven't done that on, but this this moon map is printed at the very same size, so that is A2 size, um, about 18 by 24 inches, I want to say. That's about the size that it's drawn at. A lot of information to pack in, so very small lettering. To be able to pack that all in in such a, a small space, it needs an incredibly detailed plan, and I probably went through about three or four sketches increasingly getting more detailed with starting to sketch the actual sizes of things rather than just, oh, I want to place this here and I want to include this and that. And then kind of the final sketch is drawing everything at scale, kind of scaled down, so kind of just A4, 8.5 by 11 size, to plan out this is exactly the space I have for each of these different elements I want to include. At that point, it's a process of then transferring that onto the actual sheet of paper that I'm going to be drawing the map on. And there's a few different ways I've done that in the past. I initially started using, I did the kind of square grid technique where you have 
small squares and then you have a, a larger corresponding square on what you're transferring across. A few years ago though I invested in a, in a, a backlit drawing board which has saved me all sorts of time because now I can scan my sketch, print it you know in four sheets of paper, kind of tape those together so it's it's then the size that I'm drawing on, then just stick that behind and then I can trace over it. It makes things so much easier. So yeah it's then drawing that sketch as a plan in pencil very light pencil because of course you're going to need to uh, erase it and getting all that information down and that in and of itself on the moon map probably took me about a month and a half just doing the pencil and that included putting all the text in getting the text fitting into those spaces kind of the curvature in in, in some places um, to make it fit around other elements on the map once that's done then you can start with the actual ink and for the ink, I always do the text first, because if you do the text and ink first, you can leave a white space around the text as you're drawing everything else. And then that way the text actually appears. And I think that's, that's, that's really important, especially with a map that's quite dense with things. If you're drawing text over something else, especially when it's black and white, lines interfere with other lines and it just, it can start to look a bit of a mess. So text is always first. And then it's just really tackling one element at a time. Um, I often work from, I'm, I'm right-handed, so I kind of work from the top left, kind of moving my way down, so I don't smear any ink as I go. The ink I use, I use dip pens with different nibs in ink. They're more time-consuming, they're a bit more difficult to use than just, say, Pigma Microns, and I, I do use those as well sometimes, but I find dip pen ink, you get more character through all the lines. You get a little more bleeding here and there, a little more variation in line thickness. You have all the calligraphy nibs that you can get text on, where, whereas with, with Pigma Microns, because the tips are just a simple point, you kind of have to, have to fudge it if you want to have a thick stroke and a thin stroke if you're doing that sort of text. And it can work, but it's easier to just use a, a proper calligraphy nib. So just kind of working through all the ink, tackling one, one section at a time, what absolutely took forever was the stippling of the lunar surface. And yeah, I didn't, I didn't think that that was going to take me about two months to do. But there would be some days where I would be stippling for three, four, five hours, and I'd get maybe one to two square inches, you know, um, <laughs> dozen square centimeters done on that. It just, it absolutely took forever, just kind of dot, 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 dot continuing on. But I wanted to make sure those craters looked accurate as much as could be done on, on in such a small space. So yeah, that's about how it works. What's the end to end from first pencil sketch to you're holding the proof? So yeah, that one was about seven months to complete. Some of my other maps have been three, three or four months. But yeah, that one's by far the, the longest I've ever spent on a single piece. Do you draw it magnification with the lens over? I was very surprised that you do this all at one to one scale. I always assume it was drawn larger than reduced. I do get asked that a lot. No, I am blessed with very good eyesight and uh, kind of knock on wood and <laughs> make that continue for as long as possible. I have very good eyesight and somehow, despite the vast quantities of caffeine I tend to drink, I have I have quite a stable hand when I'm drawing drawing maps. So it's an interesting thing. I, I have tried drawing at a larger scale to then reduce down. And I tend to find that even at that larger scale, I make things almost just as detailed. And maybe that's just because that's what I'm used to. And so then when you reduce it down, it's almost so small, some of the lines to, to even be picked up in printing. 
And have you always used dip pens? How did you start that technique? That's a really good question, actually. So the very first maps, pen and ink maps I was doing in high school, those were just using kind of black ink fountain pen. I think I probably got my first dip pens when I did the very first Durham map. There was a there was a fantastic little art art store still there, and they and they stocked my maps, which was fantastic. Um, but uh, yeah, no, um, very close to where I was living that very first year. And thinking about it, that's where yeah I bought a calligraphy set with you know a basic set of nibs, some black ink, started experimenting. I quickly realized that for the sort of drawing that I do, it was best to use a, a waterproof ink rather than a, a water soluble India ink because the water soluble ink bleeds into the paper, whereas the waterproof ink, you don't get kind of all those little bleed lines that, that form up. The paper is very important too. But yeah, those, those first art supplies for when I was kind of experimenting with that were, were from that art shop, Kemble Gallery in Durham. Uh, definitely worth a visit if you're ever there. <laughs> the pig microns, they are, they are quite a bit faster. You don't have to worry about accidentally smudging across the ink and making a mistake. You can still make a mistake, but it's, it's, they're, 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 there's a bit less risk to use in them. Yeah, no, before, yeah, it was, it was pretty much dip pens almost from the beginning. And I just, I really like using them. You're the first illustrator I've talked to who uses dip pens. So hence my curiosity. <laughs> I would suggest everyone give them a try. You know, they're probably not going to be for everyone, but I, I do think they lend something that you just cannot get from using other pens. Going back to the lunar map, how did you pick your references for crater names, landing sites? There's a fantastic um, National Geographic map that was made in 1969, not, not long before Apollo 11. It's a very similar style to what I used, and it, it's definitely a reference. Kind of a double hemisphere map, various schematic diagrams around the outside. I referenced so much of the information from that, I felt obliged to kind of give National Geographic a, a, a credit on, on my map, because it was, it was really helpful to just have that information. So, you know, that combined with Googling a lot of things for other, other ways of drawing the same sort of schematic. For the craters, so there's a USGS.gov page that gives probably about a hundred little maps of the moon that you can just click on and go from one to one. And just looking at these pictures and comparing it to the particular section that I was drawing at the time, that's where I was able to kind of get the crater shapes I think it's about over 300 that I put on there. And I wanted them to look as accurate as possible. I had a sketch of the craters, the largest ones on the map. I was able to match up, okay, well that crater is at this longitude and latitude, so that must be this one. Okay, let's look at that photograph image on this, uh, this USGS site. It was a lot of just back and forth, look at this, look at that, try and fit it in do a little bit of pencil work before I go on in, uh, in in doing the dots and trying to keep a consistent shading as well so that there's always shadow on one side of the crater's edge and highlight on the other side so it all looks consistent. There's a reason it took me a couple of months just to do the stippling on the craters. It, it was a bit mind-boggling at times, but um, I'm glad I persisted because it, it was worth putting the time into doing that properly. Oh, absolutely. Did you have to do all the stippling in pencil first or was that first pass, last pass with ink. That was, that was just, the, the stippling was just with ink. Um, yeah, with, with pencil, it would have just been kind of the crater edge. Um, 
and maybe a couple of other very small notations. Um, but if I, as, as long as I, I knew where the top edge of the crater was and all the little smaller craters around it, as I was looking at the photograph and then stippling on, I could kind of approximate um, exactly how it was meant to look um, and make it look really quite quite close to how it, how it looks in reality. So yeah, no. <laughs> Thankfully didn't have to do stippling in pencil. That would have taken <laughs> um, that would have taken far too much time, I think. Yeah, only a seventh month project. Let's not make it a fifteen month. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you usually work at A two? As for a scale of these? Yeah, um it it depends on the map really. Um I yeah, I kind of well, uh, sort of, sort of thinking about the business side of things. I, I, um, I made maps that were slightly smaller than than A two um, initially, and then a couple that were kind of A three. Um, so that's kind of about ten by twelve inches, or or eleven by twelve, eleven by fourteen. No, yeah, no, about about eleven, eleven by fourteen, eleven by fifteen. Um, Kind of that size, um, and then I did my first A two map, um, and that was my whiskey whiskey distillers of Scotland map. I did that in twenty fourteen, um, and that actually turned out to be a really good size to work at, because it was it was large enough that you could fit quite a lot on the map, um, but it was just small enough that shipping prints is still relatively easy um even even when they're kind of flat flat in amount and printing there is also a, a, a lot of printing you can print kind of up to um sra2 size which is kind of a2 plus a little bit to allow for trimming and printing larger than that tends to get extortionately expensive um and so it sort of worked out that actually that that kind of became my my maximum size saying that though i'm about to spend quite a lot of money on a printer and i can print my own maps on demand and that will be able to print quite a bit larger so you know watch this space i might do something even bigger than the moon map at some point soon i've been asked to do a map of mars following on from the moon there's not quite as much to actually put on the map itself but there's certainly so much that one could put around the outside in terms of schematics and that might happen at some point quite soon i'm going to do a map of all the heritage railways of the uk so kind of all the old steam railways that are that are still being maintained there's so many people that are interested in that sort of thing. No one seemed yet to have done a map of it. I think it would be very popular. But uh, if if I was to do that for the entire UK, that would certainly have to be a very large map. So it's either do that at kind of A1 size, or I keep it to regional. I do England, Wales, Scotland separately, Northern Ireland as well. Something to think about. If you did the whole thing, you'd be rich off Anorak, guys. <laughs> yeah. Nobody's ever done a dip pen heritage railway map of the UK. <laughs> for the moment, I'm sticking for a, a few smaller projects that won't take me more than more than kind of a month. I have to say the moon the moon map took quite a lot of steam to 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 finish.
might be another year or two before I tackle something really big again. And for the business side, is this your full-time thing? It is at the moment, but only very recently. Started out really just as a hobby. Did a couple maps of Durham, did the whiskey map in 2014. And yeah, it was 2014 that I, that I founded the business. Realized, oh, actually, I can, make, I can make some money off of this. That's great. Seems to be a market. People want these sorts of things. So in 2014, I just finished my PhD and was trying to find an academic job. I was continuing a job that I had at um, the University Library in Durham. Yeah, I was still working as a librarian in Durham until just last year when we, uh, my partner and I moved to, to East Yorkshire. That's when I decided, right, well, I'm taking the business full time now. Make a proper go of it and work as hard as I can to boost it up to making a decent living. Unlike having a job, eating what you kill is, your vacation is just, wow, I'm, I'm getting poorer by the second. Great. <laughs> There's a little bit of like, oh, you know, come on, people, order, order things. <laughs> This particular time of year is always quite slow. And then as soon as it gets kind of into late September, October, going in towards Christmas, sales really pick up. So it's this time of the year that, you know, focus on actually drawing, drawing some new stuff, working on, you know, getting some shops and things to stock my maps, listing on various websites to try and get, get more orders. Are you selling mostly retail or wholesale? Mostly it's retail. I do have some shops that, that stock stock my maps but I, yeah i would i would say the majority of my sales are direct to consumer retail and that's why i'm via my own website etsy ebay and amazon um, and i'm trying to get onto amazon handmade but that's proving quite the headache etsy's been fantastic absolutely fantastic to get listed there people going onto etsy they have a mindset that they want to find something interesting and different I do a few Christmas markets. A lot of work, though. It is so much easier to just have an order come through online and you just ship it off. But Christmas markets are a great thing to do because you actually get to meet with people, talk with them, have a conversation, and, and it's, it's great for kind of sussing out what people might be interested in. So, oh, do you have a map of this? Do you have a map of that? Get asked for all sorts of commissions and then, and then they hear my prices and then I, I never hear back from them again. But, you know, I suppose that's just the way of it. They're good to do, um, but a lot of work. In your experience, do people point at your maps and say, hey, you missed something? That has happened. A lot of the times they say, oh, you missed something. They weren't then looking in the right place. <laughs> people will look at the whiskey map at the Speyside region and say, oh, you're missing all the Speyside distilleries. Where are they? And I have to point down towards the bottom of the map and say, well, it's its own separate inset map because there are just so many of them. I had to do a scaled, you know, version to be able to fit them all in. There are certainly, well, I won't, I won't get into comments by flat earthers about my moon map. Oh, some of the things I've heard about eclipses and how that I've got it completely wrong is, is, is a bit ridiculous, but uh, never mind. People saying the astromechanics of your eclipse diagram is wrong because the earth is flat? I have had people comment on that and it's, it's very difficult to hold a conversation. It's not, not very, not very often. I mean, there, there are some maps where I just, I'm, I'm forced to miss some things out. So my gin map is probably a good, a good example of that. I drew the first one 2015, like right at the beginning of the gin craze. And I did get pretty much every distillery on there at the time. By the time it was actually printed and selling, there were a hundred more distilleries in the UK and probably 200 more now completely went off the rails. So I did have to say, well, it is only the uh, biggest, most well-known ones, but you know, there are still well over a hundred on the map. Cartographer's secret weapon, map current as of date. 
Yes, exactly. One that I, I, that I always, I always get a headache about. The very first map that I did for a business thing was, was my um, map of the pubs of Durham. I was certainly a frequenter of the pubs, great pubs there, for pretty much every edition that I've done. It's correct when it's drawn and almost within a week of having the prints ready to sell. One of them has gone out of business or changed their name or all sorts of things. And, and you just think, oh, you can never win with something like that. <laughs> That's why it's art, <laughs> not Google Maps. Going back to some of these older maps, can you talk me through this map that you did on Vellum? So the Portaland chart, this was part of my PhD, looking at Portaland charts, Portaland maps, and my argument going kind of contrary to probably about 90% of academics was that they weren't actually used for navigation. So Portaland charts were manuscript maps made probably from around 1200. They were initially made in the Mediterranean by Venetians, Genoese, a little bit later um, in Catalonia. Once you get into the 16th century, all sorts of places all around Europe start to make them. They're manuscript maps focusing on the coastlines of the Mediterranean, and the, the coastline is the most important thing about these, so much so that all of the place names were written perpendicular to the coastline, either going inwards or going outwards, so that you didn't interfere with the drawing of the coastline. You would never or very rarely see a place name cross over the coastline. And then combined with that, you had what's called the Rumline network, that's R-H-U-M-B, and they were loxodromes, so they were lines of consistent bearing, that's, that's the word. <laughs> they were drawn as straight lines. Now this is, of course, long before there was any sort of imagining of projection. So the best that they could do was sort of sort of fudge it as just, you know, this is a this is a straight bearing. But when you're covering the whole of the Mediterranean, it is it's a small enough region you can sort of get away with it. It becomes a bit more complicated when they start to cross the Atlantic and go elsewhere. But for these for these initial maps, Mediterranean Sea, hundreds if not thousands of toponyms all around the coastline, all the different islands picked out in various colours various uh, hazards, shoals, sandy shoals, rocky outcroppings and everything drawn onto the map as well. Initially it would seem, oh yes, well this would be very useful for navigation. But yeah, my PhD kind of argued that mm, wouldn't actually be all that useful unless you were caught in a storm, you were blown way off course and you had no idea where you were. You might be able to find out more or less where you were with one of these maps. But anyway, so back to the one that I drew, it was to make up kind of the research for one of the chapters, was to do an archaeological reconstruction of one of these maps to figure out roughly how much time it would take to create, create one that had very minimal decoration. I mean, some of them far more decorated than, than, the, than the fairly simple one that I drew, just to get a sense of the economy and the business that surrounded these charts. And essentially that combined with historical evidence, documents, and, and, and whatnot, concludes that actually there weren't, there weren't that many charts being made. The ones that were made were largely decorative, and sure, the, you know, the very highly decorative, valuable ones are going to have a much better chance of survival, but there's very little evidence that even the simplest versions of these sorts of maps were being made and existed on every single ship throughout the Mediterranean. The evidence just really isn't there for that. And then that combined with, with various other things, for, for most of the time that these maps were made, the magnetic declination was completely incorrect, and there was no effort really made 
to correct it in terms of what the compasses would show versus what the room lines actually showed. The coastlines actually got worse over time, over the centuries, and a large part of what my chapter also showed was that the maps are copies of copies of copies of copies, and you just get this degradation because every time you copy something by hand, even if you're using fairly advanced techniques for the time, you'd start getting exaggerations and degradations of various elements of the coastline. And lots of little things just kind of added up to say, hmm, probably not used for navigation, but uh, anyone else who's done research on these might say, oh no, he's completely wrong. Of course they were used for navigation. <laughs> That's, you know, it's uh, it's still a source of contention. But um, yeah, that, that that's my PhD in a nutshell. But yeah, no, this this map was really quite fun to draw. And I drew it using the techniques that would have been used at the time by cartographers in the 15th, 14th, 15th century. Very interesting, and that, all that different to how a lot of people today kind of make hand-drawn maps. Backlight drawing, doing something in, in, in pencil first. Of course, it wouldn't have been graphite then. It, it might have been lead um, or, or a bit of charcoal, but, you know, a lot of the techniques actually haven't changed all that much. It's a calfskin, right? It was a calfskin. I got it from a, um, a maker in the States called Pergamina. They pre-prepped the surface for me to be able to draw on. Everything else I did myself. What are the materials that you need to make a map like this in a, a way that wouldn't make the graybeards too mad at you? <laughs> Fairly straightforward techniques. The most difficult thing, and, and, and probably the most interesting thing for me, was learning how the coastline would have been transferred from one map onto another map. There is evidence that backlight tracing was used. There's evidence of kind of descriptions of frames that had crisscrossing very thin strings that would hold the, the old map behind and the new map that you're drawing onto in front, that you would then prop up in front of sunlight and let the sun just, you know, show it and, and, and you'd you know, trace over it in charcoal first and then go over it in pen. The technique that I really wanted to explore quite a lot was using transfer paper. And they'd make their own homemade transfer paper by holding linen paper over a candle flame and kind of flicking some sort of metal implement, a um, bit of wire or something through the, through the flame so that you get smoke, quite a lot of smoke coming up. And you let that just smoke one side of this paper and you have carbon transfer paper. It's it's surprising how well it actually works. You place it underneath the map you're transferring over, you use a um, blunt stylus to just kind of trace over it, and it transfers the smoke from that transfer paper onto your new map. And it, it, it worked fantastically well, probably as well as using modern graphite or, or that, that bluish ink, which I hate because you can never erase it. But yeah, works worked fantastically. So they obviously didn't have kind of rubber erasers at the time. They would use stale bread. And, and there's, there's quite a lot of evidence for that, not just in chart making, but any sort of artists doing any sort of manuscript work. If you needed to erase something, you used kind of stale bread and rubbed it on the, on the vellum and it, it erased it right off. All sorts of interesting things. <laughs> And did you have to use like a quill pen? So I did try initially making quill pens, not very successfully, I have to say. And so I then resorted to just using my dip pens. The idea behind that being, I was trying to learn how much time it would take a cartographer to make something. If I was using a pen I was not comfortable and skilled at using, kind of cutting it and everything, 
that would actually interfere with the time more than using a pen that I did know how to use, but I was still having to take the time to dip, flick the extra ink off. The time used would be the same as using a quill pen. And more than likely by this time, the time that these maps were starting to be made, the cartographers were probably going and purchasing quill pens at a market, or they were getting an apprentice to cut them for them, and they'd just have a ready stock. So I did, I did try with a, you know, an actual goose feather quill pen, but they are, they are not easy things to use. They go blunt very quickly. I probably didn't cut it correctly. <laughs> for an amateur, they're, they're not easy. How long did it take you to make this map, this Portland chart, end to end? 40 hours over two weeks. But even thinking my conclusion from the amount of time to make just this quite simple one was that you wouldn't be able to produce enough of these charts to satisfy the demand if the demand was there that every single ship sailing around the Mediterranean absolutely needed to have one of these maps and that more it was it was something that would have been used for other purposes still connected certainly with with, with the maritime trade but you wouldn't be using it to actually navigate by in the way that kind of modern charts are used on ships if they didn't use these charts for mercantile navigation purposes, what did they use? Do you know? They were certainly using a compass by this point, but largely the routes were known and passed on from master to apprentice. When it was necessary, a pilot would be taken on board to navigate you through a particularly dangerous harbor or something. But largely the routes were were known. Where the maps might have been used is if you had ships going somewhere where they couldn't get someone to actually kind of be a pilot and take them take them through, um, or somewhere somewhere they had never been. But for the Mediterranean it's 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 unlikely. And comparing, for instance, to Scandinavian traders earlier and at the same, you know, the same point as these maps are being used. There's no tradition of map making there whatsoever, and the waters are, if anything, even more treacherous to sail. They just knew the routes. They knew what to trust and how to get there. So they would have had compasses, but mostly it was just knowledge. Um, they knew they knew what they were doing. So compass and informal knowledge, you know a guy, not laying down the chart, laying down the heading, saying, okay, we're going to hit this island in two days. For the most part, certainly some, some ships probably would have had one of these maps on board, but it wouldn't have been used kind of every hour to plot out the exact route. If anything, they were probably used far more just to plan voyages. One of my theories, I never really had the chance to do any research into it, but one of my theories is that they would have been used quite a lot for getting insurance, because it was around this time in Venice and Genoa that insuring trade voyages started to become quite a common thing. Having one of these maps to show the insurance agent, to kind of show, you know, we're picking up this product here and then we're sailing on to here and getting this here and moving on to this port and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then kind of a back and forth conversation of, oh, so-and-so, you know, so there was some pirate activity over here. So that sort of thing, these maps would be invaluable for. But actual kind of day-to-day -day or even hour-to-hour -hour navigation on board ship, not so useful. I see. So more for onshore planning and the real limiting reagent of commerce, underwriting. Yes, it all, it all comes down to business and making money or trying to avoid losing it. Do you still get upset emails from .edu addresses about your <laughs> impertinence? 
No, I've never really had an impertinent kind of email. I've been to a few conferences that specifically focused on Portland maps. And, you know, I've, I've discussed my theories with a number of people and, you know, we all have our different theories, but um, I'm one of the only ones to have actually tried making one of these maps so far. And I think, I think that's where I've done something really quite different to any of the research that's been done before. Yeah, I'd say so. It's mutually exclusive that if you cared about old maps, you would ever try to draw a map. I've never seen any map scholars or ma old map enthusiasts be like, I'm also a cartographer. So you, that is unique. I have yet to come across someone as well. Most people that I know that study the history of cartography say that they have absolutely no talent whatsoever at any sort of art and could never even attempt to draw something like that. So... And you said this is one of uh, a few vellum maps that you made. Did you make others for your PhD or commissions? Or There were a couple of kind of initial maps on vellum I made for the PhD, kind of before I made this big one. I've done a few of the maps for the business um, I've drawn on vellum. Usually that's been either they've been commissioned to be on vellum, or, I'd, or I'd, I decided to do it because it was a gift. So the map of Yorkshire that I did was drawn on vellum the person who commissioned it. He's got the original the original vellum map. I kept the copyright to be able to sell prints. It was the same with a, a map of Hatfield College that I did for the um, the senior common room, the senior common room's kind of staff of the college and, and, and academics and, and alumni. They were giving the outgoing master a map. He, he, was, he was obsessed with maps and wanted to give them a map of the college and kind of its place within the university. And so I did that on vellum, just because there's, there's something very special about a map that's drawn on vellum. It has a different kind of look to it. And then finally, the Paris map that I drew was on vellum. That was a Christmas combined birthday gift for my sister a couple of years after she came over to Europe for the very first time and, and we all visited Paris. Um, she absolutely loved it. So yeah, no, so she's got the original of that one, which was on vellum, but it's an interesting material to work with. It's, it's very difficult to draw a perfectly straight line and have it continue to look straight day to day because it becomes quite wavy on the surface, depending on humidity and the temperature. It's an interesting material. You really go borrowing trouble when it comes to making maps. Old pens, old materials. <laughs> There's something good, though, about using or at least even just trying old ways of doing things. I think it gives you perspective... And yeah, a sense of place in the kind of history of, of the art that you're making and an appreciation for what different methods can lend to, to, to different things. I'm always tempted to use new methods of, and, and, and ways to do, <laughs> to do maps. Any interest in doing other old stuff? Engrave, steel needle on brass plate, carve into stone. I've been quite tempted to try um, pyrography at some point. Um, I've, seen, I've seen a few map makers do that. It does look, does look very good. I would absolutely love to experiment with copper plate engraving, but I wouldn't even know where to begin. Maybe one day, <laughs> you know, and then, then I could actually make proper prints in the exact, in, you know, in the same, same sort, of, sort of old way they were made in the 16th and 17th century. What's pyrography? Pyrography is, is wood burning. You can buy pens. I'm assuming you probably have to plug them in or they, have a, they probably go through batteries very quickly. But the tip heats up quite hot. You just put it against, you know, plywood or whatever sort of wood and it just burns the surface. And essentially it's, you know, it's a similar effect to drawing with ink, but you're burning into wood to do kind of the same thing. They look really cool. Something I'm tempted to try. 
Nice. I had Jake Coolidge on this podcast, and he did copper plate engraving mm. for a map of Mount Rainier in Washington. Yeah. Of course, it was a pain. You coat the plate with wax, you take a scribe, you scratch off where you want the ink to go, then you dip it in acid, which etches away at the exposed parts. And you have to time the acid bath so you can get lighter or darker ink wells, essentially. And luckily, there was a place in Seattle that had a guy who did this all day that could advise him technically. But he was a printmaker in university and just decided to go back to it about 10 years later. If you ever go, want to get your copper on, I got an email for you. That would be a really cool thing to do, um, to try at some point. Now that I'm full-time, there is the time, hopefully, to try and do a lot more things, experiment, try some new ways of mapping. Back in high school, I did a bit of um, Sumi-e, Japanese-Chinese ink brush painting, and I've been quite tempted to do something similar using those same sort of brushes, but to make to make a map somehow. Not quite sure how, um, so you wouldn't be able to get kind of the fine, intricate detail the same way, but, you know, I'm sure there's some way of doing it. More impressionistic map. Yeah. Do you still take commercial commissions? Is that a good part of your income, or is it you decide to make a map eight months later, time to sell it? At least about half of the maps that I do are commissions, some of which I, I then keep the copyright to, to sell prints of, you know, and, 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 uh, and, and in which case, you know, you kind of see them, you know, amongst, amongst uh, the maps that I sell. Some of them are, you know, very private things. Um, I recently completed one that was for a wedding, um, someone's wedding, kind of showing all the places that are involved with the wedding. I've done various illustrations for books, you know, and most of those are just, you know, it's such a specific thing, you know, it's just, it will go into that book and that's that. I do enjoy making the commissions, um, but equally I, I enjoy making sure that I can set aside time to do a map of something that I, I want to do and I find really interesting and I think will sell well. That's always kind of in my mind that it is my livelihood now, so I do have to, I, have to, I do have to make stuff that people will actually buy. I just get, get so many people asking, oh, do you have a map of this? Do you have a map of that? Which is great, you know, it means they're excited about my work and they like what it looks like, but they're also looking for something, you know, specifically of this place. Probably nine out of ten times I get asked about a commission, I kind of send off my prices for, for what it all costs, and then I don't hear anything back. My maps do take quite a long time to make. Even fairly simple commissions are probably still going to be many tens of hours, so you, you know, you have to charge accordingly. Are the commissions A3, A2? You ever get asked to do an enormous one? Any size, really. I was once asked to do redraw an original of the whiskey map but at twice the size, you know, but when I, when I quoted that it would be several thousand to do that because it would take that much time. Yeah. Never, never heard anything back just for my current setup. I, I probably would have a limit, probably about a one size would probably be the biggest really that I could do. Have you done one of those before? No, the, um, the moon maps, the biggest, the biggest that I've done, but you know, plenty of time still to I want to thank you for taking this time. I won't keep you much longer. Are there any map makers or artists, living or dead, that people should check out? There's probably 20 people I'd love to get a, give a shout out to, but um, I mean, there's three that, that kind of particularly stood out. One, her name is Claire Fanjul, F-A-N-J-U-L. She's somewhere in France. Follow her on Instagram. Absolutely beautiful black and white maps. Um, and she also draws on orbs. 
I believe wood usually, sometimes painted. They're very fantastical. Lots of little magical um, buildings and and creatures and, and things around the maps and they're absolutely gorgeous. Absolutely love her work. Another one, someone I, I yeah, I hugely respect just for the amount of decoration, the amount of detail that goes into it is, is uh, Francesca Berold. I mean, she's done lots of maps for video games and things. She's kind of at the level that I would love to be in about 10 years of kind of, you know, fairly well known, getting all sorts of commissions from huge video game producers and, and books and, you know, um, publishing houses and that sort of thing. Beautiful fantasy maps with a lot of color in them. Um, and yet the color is usually subtle enough that it's not interfering with the map itself, which is quite a difficult thing to do. And then the third one, yeah, I'm not sure if you'll have come across her yet, but I wanted, yeah, a shout out to um, Sarah Faruqi. And she does watercolor maps, mostly of um, Northern England. Uh, she lives in Northumberland. Um, really beautiful, beautiful, beautiful maps. I absolutely love her work. Had you not interviewed him just, you know, a few weeks ago, I probably would have shouted out to Anton Thomas as well, just because of the amount of work that he puts into a single piece is absolutely incredible way more, more so than me. It's not a person, but for listeners to go to the Rumsey map database, if they've never heard of it, there's just so many old maps you can see um, in great detail, freely available online. I get so much inspiration just from browsing, you know, and I can easily spend an hour or two just browsing through there and looking at tens of thousands of pictures of old maps. Well, old and, and some not so old. I think there's maps right up until the kind of 1990s. Absolutely fantastic. I know you like to you like to encourage everyone to just go out there and draw a map, and I definitely encourage that as well. And if you're looking for inspiration, I think that's a great place to start. I definitely agree. That Rumsey collection, incredible. It's it's fantastic. As far as I can tell, Rumsey made a bunch of money in real estate, decided I'm gonna have the most magnificent map collection, make it public, make a private photogrammetric studio to digitize everything even makes the old maps better. He'll take 50 maps that originally came on 50 discrete plates and then stitch them together into one enormous composite that no one contemporary to that map had ever seen before. Yeah, it's fantastic. Fantastic what he's done. It certainly helped me out a lot. <laughs> How do you spell Faruqi? F-A-R-O-O-Q-I. They're very peaceful, I, I find. Um, and again, excellent color. I tend to not a lot of color into my maps just because in my style I've, i feel it it might detract from the pen and ink itself um so i always have great respect for people who do put a lot of color into their into their maps and still make them you know so detailed and and, and interesting to look at it reminds me of neil gower g-o-w-e-r he does a lot of maps for gardens and book illustrations and they're very colorful watercolors kind of like faruki yeah, thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for, for inviting me to share all my thoughts about cartography. And I need to actually get out there and go to various cartography conferences and, and get-togethers. If you went to the NASIS North American Cartographic Conference, they would never let you go. I really ought to, especially if it's, if it's held anywhere near Denver again. Um, I know it has been in the past. I really probably ought to, just because it'd be very easy for me to attend. I could, you know, stay with my parents and then pop there and wouldn't have to worry about hotels and things so is there any british cartographic community certainly for the history of cartography but as far as actual 
kind of people making maps, I'm not sure that there is, and there really ought to be. So there are there are a fair number of us in, in practicing in the UK. Yeah, if there is, I haven't come across it. Thanks so much for talking to me. Wonderful. Cheers. Bye. To see Kevin's work, visit manuscriptmaps.com. He's also on Instagram at manuscriptmaps. For show notes and bonus content, visit veryexpensivemaps.com. This episode is brought to you by the Map Consultancy, supplier of professional, data-driven maps for your decks, reports, walls, and events. Visit themapconsultancy.com to see what good maps can do for you. I'm Evan Applegate. I'm a cartographer and you should make your own maps. No one wants to see dull, ugly maps. If you want to get through to your customers, you need the best cartography money can buy. The Map Consultancy will create maps with your data and your branding, PowerPoint decks, annual reports, conferences and events, your office walls. The Map Consultancy does it all. Visit themapconsultancy.com and get the best maps today.